When I learned my uncle was in an Oakland Chinatown gang in the 1970s, I found people to talk about his time in the Soising, but I still didn't know exactly what he did in it until I found this. Yeah, you're coming through beautifully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Turn the radio down. Okay. Uh, how about now? Yeah, that's good. It was a police recording of the incident that would send my uncle to jail, or rather a court transcript, where the recording was used as evidence. The original tapes no longer exist, so I decided to use the transcripts to recreate that night. So, um, okay, I, I just walk out and, and talk to them? <laughs> no, no, just stay right there. Stay right at the door. Once they have the money, the, they won't want to come in. Uh, are you sure? They'll get what they came for, and they'll be gone. It was a Friday night in October 1972, and a woman we're going to call Mrs. C was at her home in Oakland. The cops were there, recording everything. Outside the front door were members of the Soy Sing, my uncle's gang. Okay, now stay calm. Don't get excited. <sighs> It was my uncle. He was 20 years old, and he had no idea he was being recorded. Can you open the door? I won't open it. Do you have no respect for me? It turned out they were there because of supposed beef between high schoolers. Galen told Mrs. C that her 16-year-old son offended a Soy Sing member's girlfriend at a house party. Her son denied that ever happened, but my uncle refused to hear it. Okay, what is this all about? What do you want from my son? I want him to apologize to everybody. How can he do that? Well, I want him to come down to Chinatown. Come down to Chinatown, he said, and buy the whole Soy Sing gang dinner. It was a strange demand, but there was a reason for it. Asking for money flat out, that was extortion. But having someone pay for dinner, Galen seemed to believe there was nothing illegal about that. At one point, Mrs. C flat out asked my uncle if he just wanted money. She even held out a stack of unmarked bills the cops gave her. No, he said. That'd be extortion. No, because it's extortion. He went back to the dinner. Five tables at the Golden Eagle Cafe in Oakland, Chinatown. The gang's hangout was around the corner. You want us to pay for the banquet? No, 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 no. I don't want you to pay for the banquet. I want your son to pay for the banquet because he's the one that's apologizing. Galen told her the dinner would cost $250. Well, he don't even work. It would take him six months to save up that amount of money. He's a man and he can do like everybody else. He has to get his money. Then Galen's demands turned into threats. There's only two ways he can apologize. What are those alternatives? Either you pay for the banquet, or your son doesn't live very long. What, what do you mean he doesn't live very long? Your son does not have long to live if he does not apologize. Galen and the Soy Sing boys left. And immediately, the cops came running out of the house, chasing them down the block. They arrested them. 
When the cops searched the getaway car, they found a loaded handgun. They charged Galen with attempted extortion. When I read the transcripts from that night, it's like reading a screenplay. But then I stop and think, no, this was all real. It's not some movie he invented. My uncle really did stand on that family's doorstep. Nothing about the extortion shows up in my uncle's script. It's all in the game. But I'll come to find out that it's the years after that night that Galen was writing about. And the more people I talked to from that time, the line between fact and fiction became blurred. And I learned there's more to Galen than the tough guy he portrayed himself to be. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman. This is Magnificent Jerk, the true story of a fake story about a real life. Episode 3, Choo Choo Cherry. The night of his arrest, Galen called home from the police station. My Auntie Joanne was 17 at the time. Were you surprised when you first found out that he had gotten arrested? I was shocked. I was shocked. I was shocked that he was being accused of extortion. Because you've never, you had never heard anything like that before. Never. Galen's bail was set at $50,000, which Papa couldn't possibly afford. His arrest made the news. The Oakland Tribune called the Soising an extortion ring and reported that Galen and other members of the gang had been, quote, preying on the Chinese-American community in Oakland for years. The SF Chronicle said Galen's actions that night were part of the, quote, same kind of violence that once plagued San Francisco Chinatown. Reading these articles, I felt like the local papers flattened him into some sort of menace, the stereotype of this dangerous Chinese gangster. That doesn't excuse Galen's actions, but that framing affected more than just him. I mean, next to Galen's name, both papers published my family's home address. Of course, all my friends would know that I'm the sister of Galen who got arrested. Paul Paul was very recognized as the mother really? of Galen who got arrested. By, by who? People in the community. You know, Chinatown's small in Oakland. They all talk. So I think it was very hard for her. I thought of Papa walking the streets of Oakland Chinatown, the aisles of the grocery store, while people stared at her in silent judgment. When she was Galen's age, she lived in a small village in Guangdong. She helped raise the household as the eldest daughter. She carried water from the village well every day. The well ran out sometimes and she trekked the next town over. Before dusk, she hiked into the hills to collect firewood. My aunts told me she'd climb trees and sing Cantonese operas at the top of her lungs. Now, her son was living such a different life. And Joanne told me Papa and Galen would have blowout fights at home. I remember a time, and maybe more than one time, when she was so upset with him, so upset with them, that she took the cleaver and gave it to him and said, just kill me. It must have broken Papa's heart to realize what Galen's life really looked like, the crimes he was carrying out, the people he'd fallen in with. One night before the trial, Joanne was home alone with Papa. 
when a group of Soising guys showed up at their house. They surrounded the house with Papa and I in the house, banging and banging on the windows and doors and scared the shit out of us. We were on the floor in the dining room calling the police, but they were telling us to get out there, get out there, because they were trying to scare us to get the word to Galen that he better not talk. All rise. Galen's trial took place on November 2nd, 1972. My mom wasn't there. She was hitchhiking across the country at the time. But Papa, Joanne, and Esther sat in the front row. Mrs. C and her son were across the aisle. Your Honor, we should probably move to substituting. Wait, wait. Wait just a moment until the defendants are in. They watched as Galen was led into the courtroom. The court transcript describes Galen in a black leather jacket and purple top, hair parted in the middle. Galen sat right in front of them. How did he seem to be feeling? I don't know if it's regretful, but very sorry for what it was doing to Papa. Papa somehow scraped together enough money to hire a private lawyer. How did she afford to pay him? She manages. I don't know how she afforded many things for us, but she managed. Would she be, like, when she had to pay for this lawyer, like, what was her demeanor? Like, was she upset about it? Was she... It's just what I have to do. It's just what I have to do. Clinton White was a well-known criminal defense attorney. He wasn't trying to disprove what Galen did. Instead, he talked about how the system was to blame. The city failed poor Chinese boys like him, and Galen was just doing what he had to do to survive. Where Mr. Yun finds himself now was this business of what I think all yous are involved in. That is, what they do about some of the problems they see existing in their community. So I don't want anybody to think that this is all one-sided. But the wiretap recordings were hard to dispute. And the worst things Galen said on tape threatening the teenage boy's life, the prosecution repeated them over and over in the courtroom. Pardon me? Uh, if, if, if I don't go down there and pay for the banquet, I, I won't live long. Mrs. C and her son both described how afraid they were on the night Galen came to their home. Were you afraid? Yes. There's a moment when the judge responds directly to their testimony of Galen intimidating Mrs. C. One of the things that bothers me as I listen to this is the complete lack of recognition of authority. To think that such young men would speak so lightly of another human being's life and to speak so crudely to a mature adult, it makes me worry about their reliability to authority. The way my Auntie Joanne saw it, though, Galen was getting punished for more than just the crime of trying to extort the one family. I feel like they wanted to make him an example. Like, he was, like, terrorizing Oakland Chinatown and the community. And I felt like they were going to make an example of these gang members. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the judge being very stern and strict. Yeah. Like, intimidating? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she's going to suck it to him. I see what Joanne means. But looking at the wiretap transcripts, it's pretty clear. 
my uncle was being a bully. I actually found the teenage boy my uncle threatened that night. He's in his 60s now. We talked on the phone. He didn't want me to record our conversation. He said he still felt scared of some sort of retribution if he talked to me on tape. When I asked if he still lived in Oakland, he wouldn't even tell me that. He did tell me he still doesn't understand why Galen and the Soy Singh guys targeted him. He denies the story about insulting one of their girlfriends. He said what happened that night still haunts him. He felt so randomly targeted, and the threats felt so real. He told me that for the last 50 years, he's been looking over his shoulder, afraid it could happen again. I view Mr. Ewan as a leader, both from what I have heard in court today and what I again heard in court is his position in his association. For that reason, Mr. Ewan, will you please stand? The judge found Galen guilty. He got the maximum sentence in Alameda County for attempted extortion, one year in jail. Paul Paul was very concerned about him being in jail, and we made every effort to get there to visit him. On Sundays for the next year, Joanne and Papa made the all-day excursion to visit Galen. When they were there, she said Galen tried to put on a good face. I think he tried to make it seem like everything was okay. And that's probably for my benefit and particularly for Papa's benefit. Esther tried to visit as much as she could, too, but it was hard to get off work. She exchanged letters with Galen. He wrote to her about how much he missed Papa's cooking. He'd heat up bologna sandwiches with a lighter just to get a warm meal. It took a tremendous toll on Papa and how she understood her own life. I get the sense she felt powerless as a mother. She thinks it's fate. Yeah. She saw my fate, my fate. And then the crying would be like wailing type of crying. The sound of Papa wailing. Auntie Esther said you could never forget it. Even for my mom, who road tripped all the way to Alaska, New York, Tijuana. Esther told me it followed them. It always followed them, wherever they went. We could hear her wailing no matter how far away we moved away from her, and I could still remember that crying. For the longest time, the next 12 years of Galen's life were a mystery to me. I mapped out a timeline of what I did know, and this was the longest stretch that was just blank. I knew he got a job at an auto body shop. My aunts told me that before Galen went to L.A., he developed a drug addiction. But that's really all I knew. So I asked some of Galen's friends, who used to do drugs with him. They told me Galen did everything from psychedelics to snorting heroin. They'd throw house parties with mountains of cocaine. One friend used to lift weights with Galen and said he liked to snort lines of coke in the bathroom in between sets. Soon, Galen and his buddies started dealing to support their habit. It became a cycle. Make more money, then funnel that money into doing more drugs. About a year into my reporting, Auntie Joanne was renovating her house and found more of Galen's stuff. She figured if anyone wanted it, it'd obviously be me. It was a box of his old possessions, 
his wallet with a couple bucks in it, his reading glasses and a Ziploc bag, and three pieces of paper stapled together, his online passwords. What's well, if his email's cleared out? I wonder if he deleted a lot of it. I mean, this is all 2020, so I feel like I have to go really far back. Maybe I can filter by dates. I have to tell you, this wasn't an easy thing for me to do. For two months, Galen's passwords actually sat in my closet. I don't know if I feel okay with this. Like, it feels a little invasive. And it brought up this dilemma I've been feeling all along. Like, do I have the right to know these things? Am I being thorough or voyeuristic? But it was mostly just spam. With subject lines like, harness the power of your spice rack and 45% off rice noodles at 99 Ranch. And then I saw an unread email that caught my eye. Sent on March 30th, 2016, about six months after my uncle died. And it says, hi, Galen. I haven't heard from you for a while, and I was trying to call and text you, and I don't know why I'm coming up with the wrong number. Please let me know how you were doing. I'm worried about you. The sender's first name. I'd only seen that name in one other place, and that's in my Uncle Galen's screenplay. It's the name of the woman Billy falls in love with. I'm going to call her Anna, though that's not her real name. In my uncle's screenplay, Anna is a beautiful Filipina lounge singer who meets Billy while performing at the club one night. Galen wrote that she used to be a crack addict, but unlike Billy, she got clean. She's getting her life together. She's got a three-year-old daughter and has plans to move them to L.A. I've got a little girl. Her name's Mickey. She stays with my mom. They're kind of waiting for me to get my act together. Anyways, I'm, I'm taking her down south. I'm scared for her. Anna asks Billy to move to L.A. with her and her daughter. We're going to have a fresh start. We'll have a whole lifetime to be with each other. Billy Kwong. In my uncle's inbox, I searched for the real Anna. And a bunch more emails came up. Hey, Galen, what's going on? Haven't heard from you in a long time. Wish I knew They're all over the span of five years, starting just after he died. With each message, she seemed more and more I'd like worried. information about Galen. Please contact me. I'm his friend from Berkeley. In one of the messages, there was a phone number. I stared at it. It'd been seven years, and Anna still didn't know my uncle's not alive. When I called the number, it went straight to voicemail. And suddenly, I had no idea what to say. Like, Hi, I saw your emails to my uncle, and it seems like you maybe used to do a bunch of drugs together, and you guys were in love with each other, and he wrote a screenplay about it. Instead, I said, um, I'm not sure, but I think you might have known my uncle. I'd like to talk to you if you have a minute. Then two weeks went by. You have one new voice message. Hi, Maya. I'm a friend of Galen Ewand, and I received your message um, today. Um, I'm very stunned and uh, surprised to hear um, from anyone because... 
I never heard from anyone for a couple of years about him. So if you if you can, um, I'll try to. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, great. The last time Anna talked to Galen was in 2015. He was in the hospital then, but she had no doubt he'd get out. Um, his voice sounded good, but he sounded like he, he wanted to go home. Mm. And then I never heard from him after that. He died soon after that last call. But she didn't get the news. As far as she knew, hardly anyone in Galen's life knew about her, including my family. Yeah, I, I called his number so many times. And I never got any answer from anybody. Galen never introduced them. She wasn't sure why. Maybe it was because they didn't know what Galen was really doing. Or maybe it was because she was married and they were having an affair. At the time Anna and Galen met, she was a sex worker. I was introduced to this business when I was 19 and um, with this other girl that I met. And we wanted to travel so she turned me on to that type of work. Anna is a first-generation Filipina, born and raised in the Bay Area. She came from a close-knit family. Her mom's side of the family was educated, religious, and very strict. Once she got to college, she did an exchange program for a summer in Mexico. It was one of her first times away from home. And she became friends with a woman who introduced her to sex work. It's weird. I think the money makes you change. I mean, of course, at first you don't like it, but, you know, when you get money, you know, you just change. You start counting money in your head. And, you know, we bought cars and we went to Europe. That's how I went through it. When she got back to the Bay Area in the early 80s, she started working at a massage parlor. Anna liked the studio. She said it was classier than some of the other ones in the area. It was run by two French sisters. One of them knew Galen from when he worked as a pimp. She introduced them. He had girls that used to work there, too. Although I don't think he was had anybody working for him at that time. I heard from other people that my uncle worked as a pimp after he got out of jail. And to be honest, when I first heard this, I was really upset and shocked. And I didn't really know what it meant. I wondered about how he treated the women he worked with. I tried cold calling a couple of them, but I didn't get anywhere. So I asked his friends about it. They said some of the women Galen worked with, he also dated. Of one girlfriend, Galen supposedly used to say, I take care of the finance and she takes care of the romance. It sounded so Galen. Of course he'd think up some catchy slogan. I don't know exactly how long this went on. I do know when he got to Hollywood, he talked about having been a pimp. But at the time he was with Anna, it seemed like that was in the past. I think he, you know, kind of really liked me. We went out for drinks or met places. But it was hard because I was married, so I was kind of like messing around on the side, you might say. Galen was persistent in courting Anna. At first that annoyed her. But over time, she started to see another side of him, the sweet side. I remember when I, I, it used to be late at night and I would, I would want cigarettes and all this stuff. And he would drive by my house and throw things on the lawn <laughs> in the middle of the night. Because, you know, I had my family there and 
It was just like, he was very nice. The other thing they bonded over was doing drugs. They both were smoking crack. I'm telling you, me and him, we went to a lot of places, a lot of hotels. You know how people do these drug runs where where you don't see them for a couple of days? Yeah. That's what we used to do. Wow. All over the place in Oakland <laughs> at the hotel. In between binges, they went on dates. Sometimes Galen would take Anna's little girl with them. We would go out to eat. They usually would be Chinese restaurants. We'd go for dim sum. We'd be in Oakland. A lot of times I'd see him in Oakland, Chinatown. He seemed to know everybody around there. Anna and Galen kept seeing each other for about two years. And even though Galen never introduced her to his family, he wrote her into the screenplay as Billy's confidant, the person who comforts him, who dreams with him. I think he kind of was in love with me, to be honest with you. Do you feel like... Do you feel like you loved him, too? I know you said you think he loved you or was in love with you. Do you, did uh-huh. you, did you feel the same way? There was a point in the beginning, yeah. But, you know, we were doing a lot of things. Their relationship was complicated by the drugs. She couldn't love him back in the way he wanted. You know, when you're kind of like high or on drugs like that, the only thing you really love is that. Nothing comes first to you at that point than doing some more. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, I know that totally makes sense. I don't think that the the real thing that he wanted from me was there, maybe because of that. From what Galen's friends told me, Galen was deep in the throes of addiction, too. Out of all the drugs they did... Smoking crack scared his friends the most because they could feel how addictive it was. And they didn't like the side effects either, especially the paranoia. So his friends quit. But Galen kept using. And they told me it started to take over his life. There's this scene in Galen's screenplay where the character he based on himself, Billy, is alone. He's in a crappy apartment smoking crack when his friend shows up. Interior, Billy's apartment. Billy is down to his last rock. He nervously looks around him, hearing things that aren't there, but in his mind they are. Billy picks up the Colt Python and aims it at the door. He sees the deadbolt quietly turning counterclockwise, then the bottom lock being worked. Terrence enters the apartment. Put the gun down. Look at yourself. Fucking junky motherfucker. You don't even give a shit, do you? Ugh. What? Terrence looks at Billy with disgust. He then points to the Bear Entertainment Center and everything else that's missing in the apartment. There's nothing left to hawk, Billy. You traded everything you've owned for that fucking crap. You just let everything go to shit, don't you? Don't you? Even your friends. Billy gets ready to fire up another hit. Terrence walks towards him. Billy picks up the gun and points it at him. What are you gonna do, huh, Billy? K- 
kill me over a piece of rock? Billy stares at Terrence. Take your best shot. This is one of the rawest scenes in my uncle's script, where we see the paranoia in Billy, how his addiction alienated all his friends. It makes me wonder if this was how Galen felt when he was smoking crack. All right, we're just going to do a level check here. If it but helps. It, it doesn't help sound louder. It just... No, it's, it's, it comes in a lot more clear. Okay. The next yeah. time our producer James and I were in Oakland, we asked Anna to meet up in person. Oh, I see like this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I brought my uncle's screenplay with me and handed it to her. She told me Galen actually sent her the script when it sold, but she never read it. I asked Anna if she felt like reading it aloud. If you want to just read that for with, Starting with Billy? Yeah. Okay, uh, my father wanted me to be a doctor. I turned out opposite. And then I say circumstances. A lot of people came up the same way I did. They're not like me. Anna puts her arms around him. He named me Richard. That guy on TV, Dr. Kildare. She smiles. Richard? Richard Chamberlain? He died when I was seven. I never cried. We used to visit his grave every year. God, I wanted to cry so bad. When I was 19, we went to pay our respect. I walked down from my dad's plot, and there was this tombstone. It was a guy I killed. He was gunning for me, so I killed him. I went back to my dad's plot, and I cried so hard. <laughs> my mom and sisters, looks so happy. <laughs> I've never been back. Can't. We're made for each other, Billy Kwong. A match made in desperation. You know what your ex, Janine, called me? A cocor. Kool-Aid flavor of the month. Slant eyes, strawberry. I felt like kicking her ass. <laughs> She's fucking goofy grape or loudmouth lime. <laughs> <laughs> I guess when I was smoking, I was baseball lemon. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. There's no baseball lemon, Anna. It wasn't Kool-Aid either. I think it was Kool-Aid. Like a special... Promotional thing. Billy shakes his head. Hey, Choo Choo Cherry, I love you. She looks deep into his eyes. Let's go score. Oh my God. That's pretty much it. (laughs) That is so funny. You mean like um, the the way you guys talk to each other? Yeah, kind of jokey like and, and still with that same mentality of not forgetting. That you're still a drug addict. 
So. Yeah, you laughed at the last yeah, line, that's the so let's funny. go score. Why is that yeah, so funny it's, to it's you? It's just so real. It's very real. As I told her more about what happens in the screenplay, I realized another part of Galen's script came straight from his actual life. He always told me that if you were going to rip somebody off, the best time to do it when they were doing a drug transaction because they couldn't call the police on you and that you could have the money, I guess, and the drugs. The drug robberies. They're the whole premise of it's all in the game. Billy fuels his addiction by stealing bricks of cocaine from drug dealers. And from what some of my uncle's old friends told me, when Galen was at the height of his addiction, that's what he resorted to. It was a team operation. They'd hit up a dealer to buy a bunch of coke. Look at that. That's gotta be what, like a couple hundred thousand? Looks like we hit the jackpot. They'd meet up, and Galen and his crew actually had the money to make the purchase. But once the exchange happened, they'd pull out their guns and tell the dealers to give them their money back. You, put your hands behind your back! He said do it now, fat fuck! They told me Galen made a lot of money from it, but eventually he had to start watching his back. But if anything come back on me, I look for you. In real life, the dealers Galen had robbed did come looking for him. And by the fall of 1985, my uncle needed to make a change. He moved in with Papa and supposedly started sleeping with a gun under his pillow. One weekday afternoon, he turned on the TV. And as he sat on Papa's red floral couch, General Hospital came on. Galen wasn't one to usually watch soaps, but it just so happened that for the first time in daytime TV history, there was an Asian storyline running. And of all the topics it could have been about, it was about Chinese organized crime. Why not? What's more important than your grandfather's pearls? His entire empire. See, there's this uh, young Asian immigrant named Tay who's recently arrived in Port Charles. If he's given the opportunity to talk to certain people, he could destroy everything my grandfather's worked so hard to establish. My Auntie Esther told me that one day Galen called her and asked if they could talk in person. She didn't know what to expect. Calling to chat wasn't something they usually did. Galen picked her up in his white pickup truck. They went for a drive and parked somewhere in the suburbs. And then he asked me, do you think that I can act? And so I didn't say anything because I didn't really know. Esther was deep in the Asian theater scene in the Bay Area back then. She once played Alice in Alice in Wonderland. They sat in a long silence while she thought it over. So then finally I just said, yes, I think you could act. And so I think that was one conversation I remember because it was not very many words. And then that was sort of a turning point in its own way because it was Something was said aloud. Galen started to think, maybe if I leave Oakland, maybe I can get clean. He could go to L.A., leave everything behind, and become an actor. 
and Galen wanted Anna to come with him. He gave her an ultimatum. Leave your husband and bring your kids down south. We can get clean together and start whole new lives. I think I agreed to his timeline, and I never really had any intention of doing anything because my head was like not, it was in a totally different place. Hmm. Wait, yeah, where was your, where was your head? Like, well, I was really heavy into using drugs already. I had a little girl. I had, I had a house. I had a husband. I, you know, like, I was like just all the way out there. And that's a lot like how it played out at the end of my uncle's screenplay. Billy's ready for them to escape to L.A. together, just like they'd planned. But the fictional Anna has relapsed, and she doesn't want to leave. We should get going. Got a long drive ahead of us. Make L.A. in about five hours. I can't go with you. Billy starts to slide close to her. Don't. I fought hard. I lost. We can put together another game plan. I'm tired. (laughs) Look. I'm going to get back out there. Don't try to save me. Billy, save yourself. (laughs) What are you trying to say, huh, Anne? You're going to get back into the life I know what I am, okay? She gets up. I gotta get going. I want to see my little girl. I'll go with you. No. No. Stay clean. I'm proud of you. I love you. She has her back to him. Tears stream down her face as she mouths to herself. I love you too. Oh my God, it's so sad. Yeah. I feel like that's what I did to him. I thought Galen's screenplay was an action movie. That his life was like an action movie. But in so many ways, it was a tragedy. I started to wonder if that's how my uncle felt about his own life. In the years after Galen moved to L.A., he did get clean. And he still hoped Anna would come join him. I did almost make it down there one time. I was at the airport. He said he made me some adobo and all this stuff and... I told him I'm going to go down there and I'm going to see you. And I think he was really disappointed because I didn't show up again. Probably went back home to smoke. Anna got clean at 48. She went back to school and has a job she loves. She still lives in the Bay Area and is a grandmother now. She changed her life and found herself a second act. It turns out my Uncle Galen did too. I was at this casting call. And they were looking for this, like, Chinatown gang leader for this TV show. Next time on Magnificent Jerk, Galen goes to Hollywood. So I burst into the casting person's office and put down the newspaper, which had the article of me being arrested for extortion. The guy was like, wow, you're the real thing. 
gave me a script. <laughs> Wait, that cannot be true. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, that's the truth. Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. Our producers are Melissa Akiko Slaughter and Maria Robbins Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior engineers are Davy Sumner and Marina Pais. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Additional music courtesy of APM. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kawugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Ewan. The fiction and recreations in this episode are performed by Jesse Kwai, Carolyn Ken, Jerry Ng, Patrick Ip, Viet Huang, Kyle Tran, Don Holleran, Jamie Brandon, Alex Stein, Eric Menel, Clara Chung, Dave Huber, and Betsy Sue. Special thanks to Mark Chang, Suki Lor, Yo-Wei Shaw, Stuart Sugarman, Aaron Williams, and Brian Wong. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>